Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, November 5th, uh, 2023. Uh, We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. In this episode, uh, we'll have dispatches on the continuing threat of a further regionalization of the siege of Gaza. The West Asian state of Yemen uh, pledges support uh, for Gaza and its people once again. Israeli leader uh, is accused of creating a catastrophe for the settler regime based in Tel Aviv. And Iraq is being drawn to another war uh, involving the situation as it has developed in Gaza. In second and third hours, we review our interviews uh, on the current crisis in Palestine and West Asia. Uh, We have featured two interviews uh, from uh, the Pan-African Newswire editor and Pan-African Host Abayomi Azikawe discussing the situation in West Asia, North Africa, as well as United States politics. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical salute uh, with the classical music of the North African state of Egypt, uh, featuring the voice and music of Mkaltoum and her orchestra. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
I'm 
ولا جرح ولا شاف حرمان وغني قلب ولا حب ولا انجرح ولا شاف حرمان تفت
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the Egyptian uh, classical music of Um Kautum, uh, her orchestra, a live performance uh, in uh, Cairo, Egypt. And, of course, uh, we are here at the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, November 5th, uh, 2023. And uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire report. And these are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. According to Tasnim, the Brigadier General stated that Iran's advice to the United States is to end the war immediately and ensure a ceasefire. In the event that the Israeli aggression on the Gaza Strip does not cease, Iranian Defense Minister Mohammed Riza Ashantiani warned uh, to launch a serious strike on the United States uh, earlier today. According to Tasnim, Brigadier General stated that Iran's advice to the United States is to end the war immediately and ensure a ceasefire. Ashantiani uh, warned that if this is not implemented, the U.S. will face a serious strike. Israeli occupation forces have murdered with cold blood, 9,500 people in the Gaza Strip. Throughout the 30 days of aggression on the blockade the Strip, the government media office in Gaza reported on yesterday. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad underlines that Yemen's support for the Palestinian cause has been unparalleled, with the Yemeni people offering everything they have to Palestine. Yemen's support for Palestine is unparalleled. The Yemeni people have done everything for their Palestinian brothers. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad Movement representative in Yemen, Ahmed Baraka, told Al-Mayadeen earlier today, the wounded people of Yemen donate to the wounded in occupied Palestine, and there is nothing greater than this in terms of what the Yemeni people can offer their brothers in occupied Palestine, Baraka said. Yemeni people have done everything if they have participated in popular protests, contributed financially, and engaged in armed resistance for the sake of Palestine. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is being accused of leaving the Israeli occupation in shambles as he prioritizes his own interests. Former Israeli Mossad chief, 
Danny Yatum, said Israeli occupation Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has caused a lot of harm to Israel, affirming that he continues to do so during the war on Gaza. According to Israeli media reports, Yatum uh, stated that Netanyahu still prioritizes his own interests and then those of Israel, indicating that his considerations are impure and calling for his replacement. Yatum explained in his statement that one of the problems is that Netanyahu believes he is the only one in the world who can manage Israel, and if he leaves, it will collapse, adding that with him, Israel will collapse or has already collapsed. Israeli media quoted the families of the Israeli settlers who died in Operation Al-Aqsa flood as saying that Benjamin Netanyahu led Israel to the biggest catastrophe in his history. One of the members of the families of the Israelis who died on October 7th as part of the Operation Al-Aqsa flood told Channel 13 that Netanyahu was tearing apart the Israeli people through the judicial amendments. He disintegrated Israel uh, and neglected the settlements in the Gaza envelope for years. The settler added that Netanyahu strengthened Hamas by repeatedly ignoring the warnings of security and military leaders and prevented ministers from hearing warnings about the dangers of war. Voicing the position of the families of the Israeli casualties, the settler called for Netanyahu's resignation, saying, for the sake of saving Israel and saving us, Netanyahu must leave now, yes, in the midst of the war right now. And finally, U.S. Uh, occupation in Iraq has again been targeted by the Islamic resistance in Iraq, according to the new statement revealing the targeted U.S. occupation base to be Tal Badar. The Islamic resistance in Iraq claimed responsibility for the successful bombardment that targeted the U.S. occupation forces at the Tal Badar base in Al Hasaka in northeastern Syria. Yesterday, the Islamic resistance in Iraq also claimed responsibility for targeting the Harir U.S. base in the Iraqi Kurdistan region using two drones. Moreover, Iraqi Islamic resistance continues to target American bases in Iraq and Syria in conjunction with the Operation Al-Aqsa flood and the ongoing Israeli aggression on the Gaza Strip. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website, and that's at uh, uh, the uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to uh, listen uh, to this program again or share it with other potential listeners, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash 
Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Anita Baker, Detroit Southern talk to me, and we're talking to you about the imperialist war uh, that is rocking uh, West Asia and North Africa and the struggle to end that war. And up next, uh, we're going to feature an interview, uh, two interviews, in fact, uh, from Global Research uh, NewsHour, uh, one involving yours truly, Abayomi Azikawe, the editor of the Pan-African Newswire and host of the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide radio broadcast. Let's listen in to uh, these interviews. How has the Western mainstream media continued to present the Israel Gaza war through an Israel lens? Why has the international community, including the global south, expressed so much solidarity with Palestine? Why has an Ontario physician and humanitarian with a clean public record been suspended and doxxed following a tweet disputing the October 7th Hamas attack? Are Jaconian anti-democratic laws being supported in Canada, the United States and elsewhere making it a crime to promote Palestine and resistance to the brutal occupation of Israel at a time the nation is at war? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we continue to investigate the situation in Israel Gaza and with an emphasis on the reaction to the escalation of the situation in the 75 year history of the divide. In our first half hour, Pan African Newswire editor Abeyomi Azikiwe shares his thoughts and analysis of why. Much of the world is resisting the Israeli response to the Hamas October 7th attack to levels rivaling the Iraq war resistance 20 years ago. Then in our second half hour, Chris Cook of radio station CFUV's Guerrilla Radio brings us a conversation from earlier this week with physician Tarek Lobani about the silencing of his colleague Ben Thompson and other humanitarian dissenters in the current age of suppression. On this week's program, Israel's 9-11, Part 2, the war waged far away from the only democratic country in the Middle East. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 27, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The European newcomers settled the land through fraudulent treaties and false promises in the past, and so reparations based on the principles of reconciliation is required to begin to set a proper balance in the present. Let us end the colonialism and genocide toward the first peoples of the land and embrace a respectful partnership between our peoples. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. 
AI systems could rapidly come to outperform humans in an increasing number of tasks. If such systems are not carefully designed and deployed, they pose a range of societal scale risks. They threaten to amplify social injustice, erode social stability, and weaken our shared understanding of reality that is foundational to society. They could also enable large-scale criminal or terrorist activities, especially in the hands of a few powerful actors. AI could cement or exacerbate global inequities or facilitate automated warfare, customized mass manipulation, and pervasive surveillance. That comes from the article, Large-Scale Risks from Upcoming Powerful AI Systems, Managing AI Risks in an Era of Rapid Progress, by Joshua Bengio, Jeffrey Hinton, Andrew Yao, and et al. Posted October 25th, originally published on Managing AI Risks. Cancer during pregnancy is rare, and before COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, approximately 1 per 1,000 pregnancies were complicated by maternal cancer. Of these, breast cancer is most common, corresponding to between 1 per 3,000 to 1 per 10,000 pregnancies, according to a 2022 Dutch study by Boer et al., COVID-19 mRNA vaccines are causing turbo cancers in young people and breast cancer is in the top three most common cancers caused by Pfizer or Moderna mRNA. Since 2021, there are far more stage 3 and stage 4 breast cancers being diagnosed in pregnant women. They are present in GoFundMe in 2020 and prior but in much smaller numbers. That comes from the article, Turbo Cancer in Pregnancy, Breast Cancer Stage 3 or 4, COVID-19 mRNA vaccination is very dangerous for pregnant women. By Dr. William Mackis, posted October 25th, originally published on COVID Intel. Quote, one must break eggs to make an omelet, I'm afraid, unquote. At this, there was a general chuckle, a chuckle that began at his lordship's side and convulsed the lot with laughter in mere seconds. After they had wiped their mirthful tears, they clapped. Lord X bowed, and the company milled about, stretching, checking their timepieces, sauntering to the large windows for a glance at the world they ruled. Lord X approached the questioner and took her aside. Whenever I feel a qualm, he cooed genially, I remind myself of the greater good. That comes from the article, The Final Challenge, a Meeting of the Enclave in the City of London, by Dr. Emmanuel Garcia, posted October 25th. On October 24th, the United States and other imperialist states, for the third time, voted against a resolution this time sponsored by the Republic of Brazil, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Two other resolutions over the last two weeks, one sponsored by Russia and the other also by Brazil, were prevented from being adopted due to the influence of the administration of President Joe Biden. 
since the beginning of the Al-Aqsa storm emanating from the Gaza Strip on October 7th, the Israeli Defense Forces have imposed a total siege on an area considered the most densely populated in the world. Many refer to Gaza as the largest open-air prison on the planet. Over 6,000 people have been killed during the siege, with thousands more injured, wounded, and traumatized. That comes from the article, United Nations Resolutions for a Ceasefire in Gaza Blocked by Washington and Its Allies, by Abiyomi Azikiwe, posted October 25th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Right now we're looking at the, uh, the ongoing uh, campaign uh, by Israel to uh, eventually uh, just let loose into Gaza with uh, possibly the greatest act of genocide since uh, since Nakba 1.0, and uh, it's having a resonance with people around the world. And uh, I just wanted to check with uh, another frequent writer. He's for Global Research. His name is Abeyomi Azikiwe. He, of course, is the editor of Pan African Newswire, and he published extensive articles on the the current Israel Palestine conflict. And uh, he joins us to, to talk about the situation in more detail. Good to have you aboard, Abiyomi. Um, Thank you. There were numerous protests against Israel and in support of Palestine and Gaza, in spite of the massive Israel-centric coverage of the events. Uh, I, I suppose these are the biggest demonstrations against a military, a major military action since the big ones against the the war with Iraq 20 years ago. And only after a week since the Hamas attack on the 7th, do you think this represents a failure of the mainstream media to contort people's uh, perceptions? Or, or is it maybe the arrogance of Western leaders, of imperialist Western countries, to think that the world would side with them because they are all because they all did. Uh, yes. Uh, they always expect uh, public opinion to be in favor of these types of uh, military operations. But uh, in regard to the siege on Gaza, uh, almost instantaneously, uh, there were demonstrations against uh, the Israeli Defense Forces and also against the United States. Uh, strikingly enough, in Britain, uh, which uh, the origins of the Palestinian question uh, came about uh, through the Balfour Declaration of 1917 and the turning over of uh, the Palestinian mandate to the uh, State of Israel in 1948. Uh, it was really amazing to see uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, that have come out in the streets and demonstrated in two consecutive weekends. Last weekend, uh, the Metropolitan Police, London Metropolitan Police, said that there was 100,000 people that demonstrated in London itself. Uh, so we know if the police say uh, that it was 100,000, it could have been uh, many more, perhaps twice as much or three times as many. And there were also demonstrations in other cities uh, throughout the U.K. 
uh, even in France, uh, where uh, President Emmanuel Macron uh, banned any type of Palestine uh, solidarity rallies or marches, uh, people uh, came out last weekend in Lyon and other cities uh, to uh, demonstrate the, against what the IDF is doing and the support of the Western uh, governments uh, for uh, this type of siege on Gaza in the United States, uh, which uh, provides the bulk of uh, Israeli uh, financial support, military support, uh, diplomatic cover. Uh, they, of course, uh, have experienced uh, demonstrations uh, almost on a daily basis in cities like New York, uh, Boston, uh, Detroit, uh, all across the board. So I think this is an indication uh, that public opinion has shifted uh, against uh, what uh, the state of Israel is doing and in favor of the Palestinian people, even among Jewish Americans, uh, even though it may not be a majority of uh, Jewish Americans, a significant number are standing up and saying, not in my name. Uh, they do not want to sign on to the genocide against the Palestinians that is unfolding right before our eyes. Yeah, it seems to me that there was a, a, a protest of Jewish uh, citizens themselves, Jewish uh, American citizens uh, recently, uh, basically a, a peaceful uh, sit-in uh, in Washington, and uh, that that's suggesting that it's it's not a, a simple you know, Jews versus Palestinian divide. Yes, and uh, that was a sit-in at the uh, Capitol uh, where over 300 people were arrested, uh, but there have been many more demonstrations uh, led by Jewish Americans. In New York City, uh, there was a, a vigil, a sit-in outside of uh, the home of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Uh, while he was visiting uh, the state of Israel to pledge unconditional support uh, to uh, Prime Minister uh, Be uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. There's been uh, uh, one, at least one here in Detroit, and there's going to be another one today, later on this afternoon, outside the federal building that's organized uh, by the Jewish uh, Voice for Peace. Hmm. Are you seeing any evidence that the politicians, I mean, even right at the top, you know, the Biden and, and, uh, and company, are, are they seeming to show signs of, oh, my gosh, uh, this isn't going the way we expected it to? Uh, for the majority of them, no, uh, because they are, have so much vested uh, in this unconditional uh, support uh, for the state of Israel. Uh, I know that uh, Rashida Tlaib, uh, who is from this area, she's the only Palestinian-American in the United States uh, Congress, along uh, with uh, Corey uh, Bush, uh, they, of course, uh, issued a statement early on and were attacked, uh, politically attacked, uh, by uh, other forces uh, within uh, the United States uh, Congress. But they are trying to maintain that same position, and I think they will regret it uh, because uh, they're going to be targets for demonstrations and protests uh, by their own constituencies. Hmm. Well, there's also that other, you know, what's increasingly thought of as that other wing of the military industrial communications complex, and that's the media, the mainstream media. Uh, do you see any evidence there that uh, the, the media that they, you know, were putting forward their, uh, their media messaging that seems to be biased in favor of the Israeli-centric uh, vision? I mean, they're showing, they're saying things like, well, the Palestinian, this number of Palestinians died Whereas the Israeli, you know, these, the Pal well, Hamas killed uh, all these Israelis 
the so seeming that that sort of things to suggest the Israeli-centric focus. Is it the media? Do you see the mainstream media making attempts to readjust their their messaging, or are they just maybe doubling down on uh, their focus? No, they're not uh, shifting uh, their basic position, uh, which is uh, Israel can do no wrong. Uh, that uh, the Palestinians, uh, they refer to uh, Hamas as uh, Hamas militants, uh, Hamas gunmen, uh, yet they refer to the Israeli Defense Forces as soldiers. Uh, there's also the assumption uh, that uh, the state of Israel is a legitimate entity and that uh, the Palestinians really have no national rights in that part of the world. No, they have not changed. And uh, this is uh, evident. Uh, and all of the major uh, media outlets, uh, whether it's the cable news network, uh, MSNBC, uh, the local uh, news outlets, and also the uh, British Broadcasting Corporation, uh, which has a worldwide uh, audience, has allowed uh, IDF spokespersons to come onto their airwaves and uh, refer uh, to Palestinians and their organizations as animals, as less than human, as terrorists. Uh, also, uh, it's interesting that they have allowed uh, people like uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to come on uh, yesterday. He was on with uh, President Macron of France uh, saying that uh, the struggle right now that's going on in Palestine is between civilization and barbarism. So these, these, this is very dangerous uh, language that's being utilized. Uh, they're trying to uh, set the stage for even more uh, massive killings of Palestinians. And it's quite interesting that um, uh, they are bombing on a daily basis uh, 24 hours a day around the clock, and the weapons that are being utilized, uh, many of them are U.S. Uh, manufactured weapons, and they have been sending weapons to uh, the Israeli government uh, over the last uh, two weeks, uh, two and a half weeks since this uh, crisis unfolded. So it just shows the hypocrisy of the United States media by not probing uh, into the origins and the essence of the uh, administration's uh, policy towards uh, Israel and Palestine. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, who is uh, never uh, gives press conferences, uh, he really doesn't even answer questions uh, from uh, members of the media, even the White House correspondents who are assigned uh, to cover his activity, frequently turns his back on the media and walks away. So this just goes to show the compliant nature of the corporate as well as the uh, government-controlled media uh, in the United States and in other Western countries. The Global South is a, a particular interest, it seems to me. Uh, they, they seem to be, you know, overwhelmingly uh, backing uh, Palestine. Well, they overwhelmingly uh, were also opposed to the, were uh, uh, not on side with the, the major uh, imperialist powers when it came to the attacks, uh, the, the, the idea of, of alienating Russia uh, in the face of the uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, war. Um, I, I'm wondering if, if you could uh, maybe uh, indicate how how can a world with who have their own unique problems be so focused on Gaza in particular? First of all, maybe you could talk about you know what you're seeing in terms of uh, you know, either public demonstrations or, or, or what have you that uh, that indicates uh, absolute solidar solidarity with the Palestinian people. In the region, uh, first of all, West Asia, North Africa, there have been huge demonstrations against uh, the siege 
of Gaza in support of the Palestinians because there are Palestinians that are being killed as well uh, at an elevated rate in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Uh, in the Kingdom of Jordan, uh, in uh, Egypt, uh, in the Kingdom of Morocco, uh, in uh, Yemen, uh, Syria, uh, all of these countries, uh, there have been huge demonstrations, the Islamic Republic of Iran, in solidarity with Palestine. In relationship to uh, neighboring Lebanon, uh, the Hezbollah uh, resistance movement, which has fought uh, two wars against uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, defeating them on two occasions, driving them out. Uh, finally, the last time since 2006, there have been increasing military engagements between Hezbollah and uh, the Israeli Defense Forces to the extent that hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been evacuated uh, from the border uh, towns uh, on uh, the uh, right on the border with uh, the uh, uh, Lebanon. So uh, it's anticipated uh, that these uh, military uh, conflicts will increase and that the Israelis uh, will be fighting at least on two fronts. But we have to keep in mind as well that uh, the resistance forces in Iraq have also fired uh, missiles on uh, the remaining U.S. military bases there. Uh, they were uh, fired, fired on uh, from Yemen, uh, thinking that uh, it was the Ansarullah uh, resistance movement, uh, which is part of the whole axis of resistance uh, throughout uh, West Asia. In regard to uh, Gaza, um, it's interesting that it's been over two weeks, and uh, the IDF has still not gone in uh, to Gaza on the ground. And uh, the fact that um, they have not gone in clearly illustrates that they have some uh, uh, concern about the level of casualties that they can encounter and what the outcome uh, of that engagement uh, would be. And also, uh, this could trigger an even more intense uh, conflict uh, between Hezbollah and the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, as well as other um, anti-imperialist uh, forces uh, throughout the region, as, as, long, as well as the public opinion uh, in the Western countries. I think that um, the outcome of this conflict uh, is quite uncertain, uh, despite all the rhetoric and the bravado uh, that we hear uh, coming from uh, the White House, uh, from uh, 10 Downing Street, and so forth. Uh, there is a reluctance, uh, I feel, uh, because the logical outcome of this uh, would have to be massive bombings uh, in uh, Lebanon, uh, perhaps in Iran, in Yemen, and also the possible deployment of hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops uh, throughout uh, West Asia. Now, we've seen this before, uh, two, decades, two decades ago, and uh, it did not turn out well uh, for the United States. Uh, even in Iraq, you cannot say definitively that the United States won the Iraq War. They haven't, because now the government there uh, is not friendly to the United States, and they have asked repeatedly for their remaining troops uh, to leave. Same situation with Syria. Uh, and also Libya, which was destroyed, uh, but they were never able to put it back together in the image of U.S. imperialism. Afghanistan, we know clearly they could not say that they won the war. Even after 20 years of occupation, they were forced to leave uh, over two years ago. And now in Ukraine, uh, obviously they're not winning the war in Ukraine either. The tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops that have been killed, uh, that have been wounded, uh, their amputees, and they have not uh, been able to uh, advance in their much champion spring, summer, and fall offenses uh, in Ukraine. And also in regard to public opinion, uh, Ukraine uh, now 
is it, the public opinion is not the same as it was a year and a half ago in the United States. Um, many more people now are skeptical about U.S. policy in Ukraine and do not want an open-ended uh, funding of a war in Eastern Europe either. So I guess I just leave you with a question. I mean, from the U.S. standpoint, I mean, you can appear to be we support Israel, but not to the point of wanting to send troops alongside Israel to uh, you know to, to back it up. I mean, they they've they're really in a position of you know trying to support them, but you you don't want things to get out of control. I mean, what's oh, I don't know. I know you said it's, it's kind of hard to project where this is going, but uh, I mean, clearly, what whatever happens, I mean, uh, is there any way that Biden could pull his uh, his rep, win your his reputation back in in, in advance of the next election? Uh, well, already, uh, even prior to uh, the uh, developments that began on October the seventh, eighty uh, percent of those who vote uh, Democratic in uh, national presidential elections uh, felt that he was not fit uh, to run for office again due to his age and other issues. Also, the opinion polls uh, have him um, scoring extremely low uh, in regard to overall approvals. So this war and the continuing war in Ukraine and also the problems uh, in the U.S. economy domestically, uh, we have uh, the largest outbreak of industrial action in the United States in some time. Uh, hundreds of thousands of workers that have been on strike and are continuing to go on strike throughout the United States. Uh, his approval rating is extremely low. Now, if he wants to deploy hundreds of thousands of troops again uh, in the West Asia region, which they may have to do uh, if uh, Israel suffers uh, tremendous numbers of casualties, uh, if, if they do decide to go in in a ground war against Gaza, uh, the U.S. would be facing the possibility of uh, landing troops in that region, uh, sending even more aircraft carriers uh, to uh, the Mediterranean. Uh, so it could uh, pretend much for the future of uh, the Biden administration in its attempt to be reelected uh, next year. Mm. Uh, Biomi, it's really a pleasure having you back on the show. Uh, we really look forward to hearing your uh, intelligent and articulate viewpoints and uh, uh, thank you very much, and I uh, look forward to having you again soon. Okay, thank you so much. We've been speaking to Abiyomi as a QA editor of the Pan-African Newswire and a re regular contributor to Global Research. So last Saturday, October 21st, enormous rallies in support of a free Palestine and calling for an end to Israel's aggression and demanding a ceasefire to spare the lives of Gaza were expressed all over the world. We are going to air some of the audio from right here in Canada. First, we have audio from the rally from Memorial Park uh, next to the Manitoba Legislative Building in Winnipeg, and then from the lawns of the Provincial Legislature in Victoria, B.C. We will air some of that audio right now. Did you mention the breaches of international law? 
don't like them. You don't like them. You keep, keep speaking up, people. Keep speaking up until our government acts faster. We expect Canada to commit to its legal and moral responsibility. We call to hold our government to account. We call to shut down hate. Thank you very much. Free, free, free Palestine! That last audio was created by Chris Cook of CFUV's Guerrilla Radio in Victoria. Uh, he will be back with a recording of the Guerrilla Radio interview he did recently with Tarek Lubani. We start that interview immediately after a brief break. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Well, Israel's stated determined erasure of Hamas and the apparent complete destruction of civil life on the Gaza Strip, it says that ambition necessitates, is destroying more than the lives of the tens of thousands of captured Palestinians living in the besieged enclave across the Western nations allied with Israel's project. Draconian anti-democratic laws are being drafted, forbidding demonstrating in support of the Palestinian people and their just resistance to the brutal occupation, while social media outlets cancel those in support and employers are pressured to fire people who attend rallies or exercise their rights to free speech online. The latter is just such a case where physician Dr. Ben Thompson was recently suspended by his employer, Ontario-based Mackenzie Richmond Hill Hospital, for, as they put it, social media posts that do not reflect our views or values as an organization. Tarek Lubani is a London, Ontario-based doctor and humanitarian. Tarek runs the GLIA project, which seeks to provide medical supplies to impoverished locations, one of which is the Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza, where Tarek has practiced. Welcome to the program, Tarek. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's my great pleasure, of course. Now, can you tell me uh, and our listeners, who exactly is Dr. Ben Thompson? Dr. Ben Thompson is a humanitarian who has a long history of well over a decade of working on humanitarian causes across different places, countries like uh, Uganda, uh, obviously the Middle East and Gaza and the West Bank, where he has been making statements that uh, have resulted in this harassment campaign against him. And then recently, he even started a project in 133 indigenous communities in uh, in northern Canada to ally with 
their medical programs and make sure that they had top-notch medical care. In short, Dr. Thompson is an exemplary human being who everybody likes and everybody thinks is brilliant, uh, which is what makes this doubly ridiculous. Well, I don't want to embarrass you, but like yourself, he's more than that, even in my view, just reading his short bio, he's something close to heroic uh, and a cancer survivor and organ donor to boot. Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, this guy is literally like if you were to write a uh, protagonist who had nothing wrong with them, like that's him. And you're right. He is a cancer survivor. I was with him when he donated his kidney and he donated his kidney because he wanted to make sure that other people had a chance, what's called an altruistic donation. Every donation is valuable. However, he didn't donate it to a friend or somebody he knew. He donated it so that he could start a chain of people who could donate to each other and be valuable. So I generally try to shy away from language like heroic, but I think it's appropriate in Ben's case. Now, Ben, I, I'm looking at his, uh, his Twitter feed. There's nothing in it after October 13th. Um, so I'm assuming then that his legal representation has told him just to not say anything. So we have effectively already it is a very credible professional Canadian with uh, intimate knowledge of the area, the region, and especially now in light of the bombings of hospitals, which has been going on. And you can talk a little bit, having been in Gaza many times yourself, uh, about how those hospitals are targeted. It's not a, a controversial assertion to make. So now he's been silenced. That voice has been effectively silenced. I'm not talking to him today because he doesn't, he doesn't want to break that silence for legal reasons. Now, when you say that you're not speaking for him, what can you tell us then that uh, it's authoritative uh, but uh, not legally compromising about the case? Well, you're right. Ben himself is not speaking at all right now. Um, I'm not privy to what his lawyers have told him. Um, he hasn't asked me and I wouldn't, he hasn't told me and I haven't asked him. Um, when I do engage with him, it's purely as a friend to support another friend in a time of catastrophe. And so he is, you know, I think it's probably fair to say and not outside the bounds uh, of my relationship with him to tell you that the man is suffering. You know, he was, he lost his job and he was uh, put out of his home because of these threats. And as such, he's suffering, just like any of us would be in a similar situation. In terms of the facts as we know them, uh, well, basically, he was dismissed from his position. He was suspended from his position because of, of uh, what happened. Um, in terms of his speech, he was talking about the basic human rights of Palestinians. I love Ben. Ben is fantastic. Ben is not a radical. Ben was not talking about radical things. He probably would be like uh, on the right end of your guests on this program. What he was talking about was the most milquetoast assertions. For example, he was fact-checking the debunked claims that Palestinians beheaded 40 babies. This claim, I mean, our, our friends in the Jewish community understand claims like this. They're meant to dehumanize. They're claims that, that are said without assertion to create a pretext for dehumanization and to create a pretext for attacks. That's what those claims are about. They're not about truth. And if they were about truth, then the organizations that would have perpetrated these claims would have been relieved that they were debunked. Thank God there haven't been 50 babies who have been beheaded. Yeah. That's yeah. something that's good for all of us. None of these groups have retracted their claims. 
None of these groups have apologized. None of these groups have, have um, sort of expressed how happy they are that this misinformation turned out to be untrue. And that tells us that it is being used as misinformation. It probably was known or suspected to be misinformation early. And as, as a result, really, we can say that its purpose is dehumanization. Now, the, the hospital asserts that they dismissed him because of the safety risk. This is McKenzie, McKenzie Health, now where he works, yeah. Yeah, McKenzie Health. So they basically say, hey, look, you know, uh, because you said something, there were death threats. And because there are death threats, you created an unsafe work environment and you have to be suspended. Wow. Well, this, this is, is similar, similar, sorry, uh, to, to the Ontario NDP uh, uh, representative, Sarah Jama, who the things that she was saying on, in, in, uh, on social media elicited threats. And the party says, oh, well, you're, you're, a th- you're a, now your presence poses a danger to your colleagues. And so you have to go uh, from threats made from, from some, some anonymous uh, thugs. There's clearly a template for harassment of people who are speaking about Palestinian human rights. These people are not creative. And so, yeah, you're telling me that the same template is being copied and pasted from Dr. Ben Thompson to Sarah Jama. Yeah, I believe that. And, and clearly this language of safety is also, because of its subjectivity, a very, very difficult one to fight against and a very easy one to weaponize. But what they've done in both of those cases, I can't speak about the Sarah Jama case because I don't know it well enough, but I can speak about the Ben Thompson case. What they're doing here is they are creating a pretext for or, or a procedural pretext for removing somebody from his job because of the actions of somebody else. So, you know, they're, they're victim blaming. I mean, Dr. Ben Thompson was basically put in a situation where his life was threatened and uh, where he was the victim of harassment. The response from a hospital is not to then dismiss him, to suspend him, to cut off his income source, and to make sure that he had no support professionally or personally. The response of the hospital should be exactly what the Jewish General Hospital did when there were threats to their staff. There were threats to the staff of the Jewish General, and the hospital responded by upping security and by making sure that all of the doctors there had all of the resources they needed so that the threats against them wouldn't translate into them feeling unsupported or, or uh, not have what, what they needed. And very appropriately, of course, all of us in the medical community rallied around that hospital to say, hey, what do you need? What, what exactly can we do to help? And, and in so doing, we created an environment in which our colleagues feel supported and which our colleagues don't feel re-victimized by our indifference, or in this case, not even indifference, but um, but literal like re-victimization. Yeah, and where where this kind of precedent leads, uh, who knows? I mean, you could uh, somebody that is determined to do so could shut down any number of uh, uh, civic infrastructure projects and operations and target people they just don't like. In this case, uh, the hospital recorded the threat that came in by telephone. I'll read it. Uh, When you said that these people aren't creative, well, then this uh, will accentuate that point. Quote, 
It is disgusting. You are a disgusting human being. You do not know what you're saying. And if you do not remove it, I suppose this is the post he's talking about, I advise you and the rest of your staff to stay out of your office. So for for this threat, I don't know if there was more than one. This is the one, this is I'm reading off of of an article the CBC put up, Ontario doctor suspended his address published. He was doxxed as well after pro-Palestinian social media posts that from uh, October 20th. So basically what we're having is, is, again, thuggish behavior being rewarded by having the d- desired effect in uh, making an example of Ben Thompson, but also of depriving him of his um, employment. And you say that his, his residence, he, he was uh, scared enough that he, he had to go into hiding. Is that what uh, you're saying, Tarek? Yeah, yeah, that is true. And I mean, it was the police who told him he had to go into hiding because they judged the threat, that particular threat against him personally to be credible. So we're, we know that there are needs here. And, you know, the, the death threat, I don't know how many death threats there are. I don't know where the CBC got the audio of that particular death threat. But what that tells you is that there's a lot of people who are upset about this. You know, people have been contacting me from inside the administration of this hospital because I published this thread about it on social media, which might be where you had heard about the story as well, Chris. Mm-hmm. And what they've been, what they've been um, sort of saying is we totally disagree. This was the egregious abuse of power. Suspensions do not come that quickly. Suspensions do not come from one person. You know, these are processes that are so well established in medicine that we all understand them. Even if you've never been suspended, which the majority of doctors haven't, even if you know, you, you've never been directly part of the process, we all know that these processes take time. We all know that the only things that result in sudden death suspensions are basically if somebody's found to have murdered somebody, somebody's found to have raped somebody, something deeply criminal. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing criminal about advocating for human rights. And I think the, the CEO keeps saying to, to people in the hospital, keeps commenting, you know, the CEO is talking to a lot of mad doctors too, who are reporting back what he's saying. And what he keeps saying to them is, look, this was a safety risk. We had to do this. Uh, he, he forced my hand. How exactly did this doctor force anybody's hand into anything? Like if I talk about Palestinian human rights, am I forcing people to threaten me? I mean, it takes so much agency from, from the, ca- the harassment campaigns. You know, you talked about the goons who called in the threat. Sure, those were goons, but those goons were, were basically rockets fired by people who were far away from it, who can deny involvement, who know or should have known what their harassment campaign was going to lead to. You know, when you use inflammatory language, accusing somebody of being a Holocaust denier, you know, that's, that's, language that makes it so that people people aren't necessarily thinking rationally and it's predictable that they're going to get mad and impassioned it's predictable that they're going to form a mob and try to lynch this person you know that's kind of how it works with these sorts of of uh harassment campaigns so him him saying um this kind of stuff it, it holds no water at all you know they didn't try i again i don't know the exact details but they didn't try at all to work with with them they didn't tell him, okay, well, listen, you know, let's talk about this. They went to literally the most grave available, quote, remedy that's available to a hospital. A hospital can't do anything worse to a doctor than suspend him or her or them, I guess. You know, they can do 
They can do nothing worse to a doctor than a suspension. And they did that to him. And so I, I, I ask you and your listeners to go through a mental or hypothetical exercise. Um, ben, the people who, who were sort of talking about him, said some vile things about Palestinians, uh, advocating uh, genocide, uh, dehumanization. You know, they deserve this, that, the other thing in terms of war crimes. People said vile things. The hospital <clears throat> has not tried to suspend any of them. Okay. Uh, if there were death threats against these people, can any of us imagine an advocate for the Israeli genocide of Palestinians being suspended? I mean, let's be honest, none of us can. If we were talking about other issues, let's talk about uh, BLM, or let's talk about virtually any other salient human rights issue of our time. Can we imagine Dr. Ben Thompson being suspended for his, his views supporting those movements? No. I mean, the issue around Israel is, is special because there are concerted, organized harassment campaigns that target anybody who speaks out about Israel. And these campaigns are vitriolic and, as we can see, are illegal. They involve death threats. So that, for then the hospital to turn around and say this had nothing to do with his speech, it's instantly, instantly not a credible statement. It's obvious that it's a lie. Yeah. Well, if you just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking today with Tarek Lubani. Tarek is a London-based, uh, London, Ontario-based doctor and humanitarian. He runs the GLIA Project, uh, and that project seeks to provide medical supplies to impoverished locations, uh, one of which is the Al-Shifa Hospital in <clears throat> Gaza. I want to talk about that in a second. Uh, Tarek, you asked, uh, you said you didn't know how the CBC, this article that I'm looking at, uh, by uh, Brishti Basu, Ontario doctor suspended his address published after pro-Palestinian social media posts. That's at CBC News Online, uh, October 20th is its uh, byline. Uh, it, and it says that the hospital itself shared that uh, recording the, that I quoted earlier on. And when you say, they also, in that article though, they show the tweet that seems to have caused uh, so much uh, rancor, at least a, a, a severe amount among one person anyway. Uh, and I'll read that too. Uh, uh, ben Thompson in his tweet says, quote, no babies were beheaded. There have been no confirmed reports of rapes. You repeat this nonsense out of racism. In the meantime, Palestinians are experiencing genocide and war crimes and you are silent. History will judge you very badly. I'm not sure who he was responding to. In, in that, but that elicited from one of his colleagues at the hospital, and you mentioned this, Tarek, uh, Gil Nimney, MD, says, quote, I guess he is also saying that six million didn't die at the hands of the Nazis. <laughs> and then goes on to, you know, to say further ridiculous things, you know, I mean, uh, that sort of sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, and what's happening there, Dr. Gil Nimney, who by all accounts is a lovely person, has been He sounds taken... lovely. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious when I say that. I asked about him, Chris. He's a nice person. But, but having said that, you know, this tells us something about the power of the propaganda. Because what you have to do in order to launch such a massive genocide against a people who, who are already occupied and captive 
you have to convince people like Dr. Gil Nimni that they are worth it, that they are worth the genocide. And as such, what, what's happened there is that Dr. Gil Nimni, this otherwise lovely person who, I don't know much about his personal life, but probably has, you know, a partner he loves and children who he adores. You know, this doctor ends up in a position where he sees fact, fact-checking and truth-telling and the attempt to de-escalate as instead Holocaust denialism. And that's not because Dr. Gil Nimni came up with these ideas. That's because the, the propaganda is so strong. Like, remember that Dr. Gil Nimni was responding to the president of the United States. You know, and most of these people, they're not as engaged with the disinformation as you and I. And so they end up in positions where um, they, are, they are forced to sort of accept these higher authorities and hear. And in fact, this was in one of the statements that was made to Dr. Thompson. Somebody said, well, who am I going to trust, you or President Joe Biden? I mean, these guys don't know what happens in Iraq so much. They don't know kind of what's going on in the world around them so much. They are victims. The fact that they are perpetrators of misinformation doesn't reduce the fact that they're also victims. So I, I think that we can recognize Dr. Gilnimni did something very wrong, and he was a perpetrator of a vile act of accusing uh, Dr. Ben Thompson of Holocaust denialism. But also that stems from him being weaponized himself by this propaganda. You know, they charged him and weaponized him. And that's what these campaigns do. And we have to keep that in mind as we're uh, approaching the, the purveyors of misinformation, that very often they're also the victims of it. Well, you're a much kinder and more understanding person than I am, uh, for sure, Tarek, because I... I... I think I reflected my thinking on that in, in a short sentence, <laughs> as unkind as that might be. <laughs> um, but uh, and, and, I mean, we have to we have to be, especially now. We all must be uh, not so credulous to accept, especially from politicians, everything that we've heard. And there is countering um, uh, information available. People that you know, uh, you don't have to trust what the what the Pentagon tells you or, or whatever. Uh, there is other sources of information available. Just that being said, so now... Uh, the, I, and I say, Chris, just before you move on to your next point, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. You know, I, I think for me, I developed this particular approach largely based on the COVID misinformation that's out there. Mm. And I transited from being like deeply um, sort of antagonistic to people who pervade the information and seeing them as perpetrators alone into this perspective of seeing them as both victims and perpetrators and trying to understand it that way. And I found it more useful in combating the misinformation because when I have that model, I start with the perspective that like, listen, you're a victim too. Let's work out why you have such tension that you need to believe that Palestinians aren't human. There are babies being beheaded. Uh... Uh, hundreds by high explosives have, having all all of their parts uh, removed in, in an instant. The last couple of days in Gaza have, have been some of the most intense aerial bombardment. Um, I, I, I haven't seen figures, but uh, how, uh, just how much uh, munitions have been dropped on the heads of people that are, <clears throat> you know, have really very nowhere to run where it's it's not uh, they're not in danger. That is continuing. I mentioned earlier uh, that um, you're attached to the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza, Tarek. Um, have you heard, uh, is it still standing? 
Yes, El Shifa is still up. It's had its environs bombed, um, and lots of people obviously are scared that eventually El Shifa's uh, courtyard and maybe even the main buildings will be bombed. But El Shifa, as it stands right now, still exists. Now, the reason why we're worried about it is because it has El Shifa has been bombed in the past. Um, and so it's received rockets, not direct to the emergency area, but to other places. Other hospitals have received shell, shelling or rockets um, to the main areas, including Indonesian Hospital not too long ago. And of course, all of these centers that we're hearing about now getting hit directly and indirectly. I mean, Wefa Hospital was literally ground into dust after being given, I think it was 24 hours to evacuate. And then the Israelis just pummeled it with artillery shells until until there was no Wafa hospital anymore. So these are these are things that people know can happen, which is why people are terrified that they will happen again. And of course, what happened in Al Ahli Hospital, um, I think, put put an exclamation mark on people's fears that the Israelis were willing to do this. Well, clearly they are willing, and it's not just this year, but in past years, as you said, these, these hospitals have been attacked, medics have been attacked, ambulances have been attacked, uh, and you yourself, during the Great March of Return, experienced this as well, being shot by Israeli snipers while you were in your green scrubs, as I recall the story. Why people um, in the press over here and in the government would think that anybody but Israel destroyed, um, part, at least partially destroyed the Al Ali hospital with such a huge um, loss of life and so many injuries is beyond me. But it, th- that, when you talk about propaganda, that is still persisting in the houses of parliament and in the state houses and in the presses here in the West where they're saying, no, no, this, this, the Israel didn't do this because I suppose when the Israeli government saw the the global disgust uh, focused on they and their actions, they decided that they this is one that they couldn't uh, they couldn't admit. But in the meantime, they're still issuing warnings to other hospitals to clear out because or else. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously Israel has a history of lying, and that's not news to anybody who's involved in these. So I think that it's it's pretty uh, evident and clear that whether or not Israel did this, Israel definitely could have done this. And unfortunately, we can't trust any of Israel's denials because they'll deny even when it's obvious that they have they have acted or when they have obviously done something, even when it's clear they have information that they did something. And if the Israelis were genuinely interested in discovering the truth here, and to me it's pretty apparent that they're not in this case, then they would open up their records for independent investigation. They would pause for a minute and allow independent investigators to collect evidence. You know, when when most people are falsely accused, they're very welcoming of investigations because investigations will vindicate them by and large. And in a case like this, why is it if the Palestinians are the ones who launched this? Why are the Palestinians asking for independent investigation? And why are the Israelis saying no? So I think when you look at the history, the history is of multiple attacks, so dozens of attacks over decades. The, the record on lying, of course, including very recently with Shreena Bakla, and even with my own case, when I was shot, the Israelis denied shooting me. And, and then they started saying, well, 
uh, it was probably a Palestinian who shot him, even though the injury pattern was very clearly one where it came from where the wall was. Like, what was a Palestinian hiding under an Israeli to shoot me? I mean, it was on the face of it ridiculous. But that was the position the Israelis took. And then when the Canadian government asked for an independent investigation, of course, none was forthcoming. I think the, the reality here is that the purpose of these denials isn't to avoid the ultimate conclusion that Israel did it, but to jam the wheels. And I think with Al-Ahli Hospital, there was a real possibility, a very real possibility that world opinion was about to turn. And that's what got jammed through this confusion and obfuscation that the Israelis engaged in. Baffle gab and blatherskite. Um, Tarek, we're out of time. Tell me before we go about the GLIA project, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, first of all. Yeah. Oh, no, you're, you're pronouncing it right. The GLIA project looks on the face of it like it's about 3D printing medical equipment. It's not. It's about making sure that any place that is low resource or needs medical equipment has the indigenous capacity to make its own, that they're not under the control of other parties. Now, what does that mean in Gaza? That means the Israelis. But in other parts of the world, there are also parties that are not interested in making medical health care accessible. For example, one of our very healthy sort of uh, pieces of work and projects is in the United States, because there also, through the use of copyright and patent law, there is an attempt to suppress, palace, uh, to suppress uh, medical devices so that regular people aren't able to access them. In, in the case of Palestine, obviously, it's just that the Israelis literally block all medical equipment. So even if you have a million dollars, you can't buy very simple medical equipment. Um, as we're seeing right now, it's not a money problem. All the world wants to help Gaza, and yet we can't because the Israelis veto that access. So GLIA is about independence. It's about providing medical care to the poorest people and the lo lowest resource people in a way that doesn't need others to say yes. Well, I'm looking at the website. It's glia.org. That's G-L-I-A dot O-R-G. Uh, you can help them in their um, efforts. I'm looking at the people involved, and they all look like, like yourself, to be kind and very good-hearted people, not so quick to judge as perhaps uh, radio interviewers <laughs> might be. <laughs> Thanks, uh, thanks a lot, Tarek, for coming on, and 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 do keep me updated with, uh, if you would, with uh, the progress in Ben's case, and uh, and I know you grew up in in Gaza, and you've been there, as I said many times, working uh, with the hospital there and in the field, and I know you must really be heartbroken at this moment right now, but um, we can only hope we can only hope that this is the beginning of a better day somehow, eh? I, I can only hope so, too. I mean, without the optimism, we don't have anything, at least without the hope. Well, thanks again, Tarek. Thank you so much for having me. We'll have more on this issue next week. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us. Welcome back.
And uh, that was um, a episode of Global Research News Hour, uh, part of which uh, featured uh, yours truly, Abayomi Azikawe, uh, the editor of the Pan African Newswire, uh, contributor to two of uh, the Global Research uh, website. And uh, being, uh, we were discussing uh, the situation in Gaza and, of course, uh, the impact on uh, the global south as it relates to alignments uh, vis-a-vis uh, the imperialist countries, uh, such as the United States being the leading imperialist country in the world. And right now we want to switch to Black Agenda Report Radio. This is a segment uh, done uh, also with myself uh, just this last past week, uh, being interviewed by Margaret Kimberly, uh, the executive editor of Black Agenda Report, and also a host uh, for Black Agenda Radio. Let's listen in. You're listening to Black Agenda Radio. I'm Margaret Kimberly. Abayomi Azikiwe is the editor of Pan-African Newswire, an international electronic press service, the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. He joins us from Detroit to discuss U.S. and Israeli actions against the people of Gaza, the impact on relations with African countries, and on electoral politics domestically. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Ever since October 7th, when Hamas forces acted against Israeli forces, we've seen this sustained attack from the Israeli government with the U.S. providing unqualified support. President Biden even went to Israel and uh, met with Netanyahu and publicly restated U.S. unconditional support of Israel, repeating Israel's claim that uh, they did not bomb the uh, Al-Ali hospital, that Hamas was responsible. So in the past few weeks, this has had a huge impact on the entire world. Talk to us about African countries, where they stand on this issue, and how it's impacting them. The uh, African Union uh, Commission did issue a strong statement uh, condemning the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, the Israeli uh, Air Forces bombing of Gaza and the siege. Uh, They have also called for a ceasefire. Uh, Nonetheless, there's tremendous pressure on the African Union. This has been the case uh, for the last two years. Uh, due to the fact that uh, the commission chair uh, issued uh, observer status uh, to the state of Israel absent of any consultation uh, with the executive council or the African Union or anyone else who would be opposed to such an action. Uh, This raised a stir inside the AU, and of course that was suspended, Uh, yet a definitive uh, decision on dismissing uh, that uh, action uh, by the AU uh, Commission Chair, Mr. Mahatma, uh, is still pending. Uh, nonetheless, uh, numerous countries have come out and condemned uh, what is going on, particularly uh, South Africa through the Foreign Minister, Dr. Nalidi Pandor. Uh, she has been quite outspoken uh, on this situation. Also, she visited New York last week to participate in the debate uh, that was raging uh, within the United Nations, and it's still going on this week uh, around the issue of a ceasefire, uh, the allowance of humanitarian relief to the people in Gaza. 
Uh, it is a horrendous situation uh, that is taking place. And as you mentioned, uh, the United States is behind this. Uh, they uh, unconditionally support the state of Israel uh, as uh, U.S. policy. And as you mentioned, uh, Joe Biden on October the 18th uh, went to Tel Aviv and met uh, with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel and others uh, within the so-called Unified War Cabinet, not even 12 hours after uh, the bombing of the Al-Akhli uh, Hospital uh, in Gaza City, a hospital that uh, was built uh, beginning in the 1880s, even before the State of Israel was founded. Uh, the notion that uh, the Islamic Jihad uh, military wing, the Al-Quds Brigade, uh, misfired a rocket, and that's what caused all that damage that killed nearly 500 people. It's totally outrageous uh, that he would say something like that, but it's not surprising considering his long, uh, decades-long support uh, for the state of Israel. You mentioned uh, the South African foreign minister traveling to New York to participate in these debates. There have been several UN resolutions regarding this issue, and the U.S. has vetoed all of them. Give our listeners some background on these resolutions, what they said, and why the U.S. claims it is vetoing them. Yes, there's been uh, three <clears throat> that have been uh, voted against uh, by uh, the United Nations uh, ambassador for the United States. Uh, the first one was put out, put forward by the Russian uh, Federation, the Russian ambassador to the UN. Uh, that was voted against. Uh, that resolution called for a uh, ceasefire and uh, also for the resumption of humanitarian assistance to Gaza. Uh, then it was uh, two others put forward by Brazil. They were weaker, uh, but they were still voted against uh, by the United States and its allies. Uh, there was uh, at least one uh, resolution put forward by the United States uh, that was uh, clearly uh, apportioning blame to Hamas and also uh, purportedly recognizing the right of the settler colonial state of Israel to defend itself, which is indefensible. Uh, so that is what happened. Then uh, the United Nations General Assembly, uh, on uh, Friday uh, passed a resolution. The other resolutions were within the UN Security Council, which is only 15 members, and uh, the imperialist countries have uh, veto power within the uh, Security Council. The United Nations General Assembly is the entire uh, membership of the United Nations, over 190 countries. They passed a resolution calling for a truce uh, and also for the resumption of humanitarian assistance, and that resolution was voted against by the United States. However, it's a non-binding resolution, so it wouldn't have the force that the U.N. Security Council would potentially have. Uh, yet, even if the U.N. Security Council did pass a resolution, it would be up to uh, countries like the United States, Britain, and France, and Germany to enforce uh, that resolution by uh, cutting off aid, uh, particularly military aid, to the state of Israel. Uh, so it, it would still be a complicated situation, even if the resolution was passed. But I don't see it passing, uh, considering the fact that the United States maintains its unconditional support uh, to the uh, Israeli regime. Talk to us a little uh, more about this observer status at the African Union, this observer status that was given to Israel without consultation, and where the background of that, and where does that stand now? Well, after uh, the uh, 1967 war, uh, there was uh, tremendous uh, outrage on the part of uh, 
countries throughout Africa. This was during the uh, period of the organization of African unity. And, of course, many countries after 1967 and also uh, the 1973 October War, which was uh, 50 years ago, uh, had broken diplomatic relations with Israel, had taken a position that was solidly uh, pro-Palestinian. Many countries have maintained that position, but others have, uh, quote, normalized, unquote, relations uh, with the state of Israel. Now, even the countries that have normalized relations uh, with the state of Israel, there are still limitations on the character of those relations. For example, the Republic of Sudan, uh, during the last year of uh, Donald Trump's presidency, agreed uh, through an interim government, the interim prime minister, Abdallah Hamdok, to normalize relations with Israel. Now, this was a complete violation of the Israeli Boycott Act of the Republic of Sudan, which was uh, adopted in 1958, just two years after the independence of Sudan. But these uh, normalization uh, efforts, the Abraham Accords, there was one uh, that was being worked on uh, just prior to the uh, Al-Aqsa flood, uh, which began on uh, October the 7th. Uh, but they're meaningless because they're not going to uh, liquidate uh, the Palestinian question or the Palestinian uh, national uh, struggle. Uh, we go back to 1979 when the Camp David Accords were signed under uh, Anwar Sadat and uh, Menachem Begin. Uh, this did not stop the Palestinians from waging a struggle uh, against the occupation and for liberation. In fact, that struggle has intensified, uh, particularly over the last uh, decade. Uh, so even if uh, the state of Israel, um, normal, quote, normalized, unquote, relations with uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, it really makes no difference uh, because uh, it does not resolve the major contradiction uh, in West Asia, which is uh, the existence of the state of Israel. So these are schemes uh, by the United States in conjunction with the state of Israel in, in an effort to minimize or to uh, stop uh, support uh, for the Palestinian struggle. But at this point, uh, it goes beyond uh, governments. There is a huge uh, mass movement uh, that, ex that expands from Australia, New Zealand, all through Asia, uh, Africa, Western Europe, the UK, uh, Latin America, and North America in support of the Palestinian struggle. In fact, just this... Uh, uh, siege on Gaza has brought millions and millions of people out into the streets. Uh, we saw it over the last three weekends in London, interestingly enough, because it is the British who started uh, this whole uh, situation in 1917 uh, with the Balfour Declaration and also the British mandate for Palestine and also the creation, turning over uh, Palestine for the Israelis to establish their own uh, state. Uh, there have been hundreds of thousands of people in central London, uh, demonstrating against uh, the uh, siege on Gaza. In fact, uh, the demonstrations uh, began at the BBC headquarters, whose coverage of this has been absolutely horrendous. And uh, red paint uh, was thrown on the building, that uh, huge building they have in London, and uh, people demonstrated uh, uh, just uh, two days ago, the Metropolitan Police said it was 300,000 300, people in Britain in London that had demonstrated. So you know if the police, uh, who are not sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, said there was 300,000, there could have very well been twice or three times as many uh, number of people. That is very significant. Even in France, where Emmanuel Macron, the president, banned uh, earlier on any type of uh, Palestine solidarity demonstrations, uh, people have gone out and broken the ban. Uh, same thing in Canada, where uh, Justin Trudeau said there was no place in Canada 
for solidarity uh, with Palestine, and that is definitely not held up. Even in New York City, where the municipal government there is heavily pro-Israel, former uh, police official, but now he is the mayor, uh, Adams of uh, New York City, uh, has been harassing uh, Palestine solidarity activists, trying to force people out of the streets, onto the sidewalks. But yet thousands upon thousands of people have come out. There have been walkouts at universities and uh, uh, high schools. So uh, the Palestinian uh, movement uh, for independence and statehood is growing. Uh, Just here in Detroit uh, on uh, Saturday, it was uh, at least 10,000 people came out in downtown Detroit, uh, took over the entire uh, central uh, area of downtown, uh, the financial district, uh, the uh, entertainment district, and uh, marched in solidarity uh, with the Palestinians calling for an immediate uh, ceasefire. So this movement is uh, worldwide, and it has prompted many governments uh, to come out against uh, what the Israelis are doing. Uh, For example, uh, in Turkey, there were huge demonstrations over the weekend, sponsored uh, by the Turkish government. Uh, President Erdogan uh, said that uh, the Hamas resistance movement is not a terrorist organization, that it is a legitimate uh, movement for liberation. And many uh, other states have now uh, welcomed uh, delegations from Hamas, uh, held conversations with them, uh, whether it's Iran, Lebanon, and others. So I think the uh, recognition of Hamas has grown based upon the uh, uh, genocidal activities of the Israeli government against uh, the people in Gaza and also the people in the West Bank. There have been hundreds of people that have been killed uh, in cities like Nablus, Janine, and others uh, just over the last uh, three weeks, killed by Israeli settlers, Israeli police, along with the Israeli defense forces. There was a Hamas political prisoner that was tortured to death uh, last week. Uh, So the repression is intensifying on the part of the Israeli state, and the administration of Joe Biden is complicit with all this. Uh, They've sent massive massive amounts of weapons uh, to um, Israel, Uh, They have uh, sent uh, two aircraft uh, carriers to the eastern uh, Mediterranean. There was a report in Intercept last week that they are in the process of constructing a secret military base uh, in Israel. Uh, So all of this is going on, and it's being funded uh, through the tax dollars of working people right here in the United States. Yes, it's uh, it's astounding that Israel regularly receives almost $4 billion every year from the United States, and Biden is proposing an additional $14 billion in, in addition to, I believe, it's $60 billion for Ukraine. So $4 billion isn't enough. Now it's another 14 This is astounding, the amount, first of all, and the fact that the American people, there's a spectrum of opinion, but most Americans want a change in U.S. relations with Israel. Those who argue for unconditional support, giving Israel anything it asks for, are actually in the minority. But yet we see this this stranglehold on U.S. politics by the uh, pro-Israel factions. I think it's remarkable uh, that public opinion is shifting in the United States, considering all the propaganda Uh, in support of Israel that has gone on uh, for decades, Uh, whether it's in the uh, mass media, among uh, politicians, and even within the religious community. There are elements uh, within the black church 
who preached the notion you have to support Israel because the Jews are the chosen people. You know, this this type of uh, madness, actually, coming from people whose ancestors came to North America in the bowels of slave ships uh, who have suffered more than anyone else, perhaps, uh, than the uh, indigenous Native Americans. For them to be arguing that an oppressive settler colonial regime is chosen to do so uh, by a superior uh, being is absolutely insanity. And uh, it is good that that uh, type of mentality is being eroded. Uh, we'll have to see next year during the elections what impact this is going to have. Uh, Saturday at the uh, huge rally in downtown Detroit, uh, it was said from the stage that, that uh, even though a lot of people voted for Joe Biden uh, in 2020 because they wanted to be rid of Donald Trump, and his uh, dictatorial policies, his efforts to uh, steal the elections, to destroy the post office, so on and so forth, uh, they would not be voting uh, for Joe Biden in his reelection bid uh, next year in 2024. And uh, I think that uh, even though they're, they're concealing uh, these uh, opinion polls and their results, uh, you can feel uh, that uh, the support for Israel is going away. Even among Jewish Americans, uh, we've seen protest activity, the Jewish Voice for Peace and other organizations. I don't think they're a majority within the Jewish community, but definitely uh, within the Jewish community, there's a growing sentiment that is significant uh, that opposes the state of Israel and also uh, calling for uh, a uh, Palestine, the creation of a Palestinian state. They have uh, withdrawn their support uh, for the Israeli government, particularly uh, this government under uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, which uh, has even uh, created a lot of internal problems within Israel itself. They can't get rid of him. Uh, he's been reelected uh, numerous times since the uh, uh, 1990s, and uh, his continuing presence uh, in Israel really has weakened uh, the security capabilities of the Israeli state. Uh, they've called up 300,000 uh, reservists, uh, for this military campaign against uh, Gaza and against Palestinians in general, yet they have not been able to stop uh, the ongoing resistance, uh, the firing of rockets uh, into uh, the occupied uh, Palestinian territories. And also, uh, we're, we're just watching now the unfolding of this purported ground operation uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces uh, inside of uh, northern Gaza. That's a very limited operation uh, right now. But the major uh, focus are the airstrikes, uh, the bombing of uh, residential neighborhoods, uh, civilian convoys who have been ordered to evacuate northern Gaza are being bombed uh, as they travel uh, to the central and southern parts of uh, the Strip. Also, uh, they have uh, bombed uh, churches, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, which has been there since the 5th century. This was even before the rise of uh, Islam. Uh, that church uh, was constructed because the origins of the uh, Christian church are in that region, uh, in Egypt and also in uh, Palestine. Also, uh, they have uh, bombed hospitals. Uh, you mentioned the Al-Akli uh, Hospital, which was constructed uh, by the Anglican Church in the 1880s. This is even before the formation of uh, the State of Israel, before the uh, Balfour Declaration of 1917, uh, before even the founding of the World Zionist Movement during the 1890s. Uh, and they had just bombed uh, a section near the hospital uh, just two days before. So it's, it's totally outrageous uh, for Joe Biden to go there 
and say that he believes, based upon the, the information shared with shared with him, that this operation was carried out by the other team. The fact that he used the term team, uh, like this is some type of giant uh, football competition, is absolutely uh, outrageous. And I think uh, Joe Biden has really uh, forfeited uh, his right to even hold office inside the United States. I mean, he has no respect uh, for the public, even the corporate and government-controlled media. He does not have press conferences away uh, when they ask him questions. Why are they tolerating this guy? So I think uh, Biden is in very serious trouble. He was in trouble even before. The opinion polls indicated that even 80% of the people who vote Democratic did not feel he was fit uh, to run for office again. And I think his approval rating right now is down even further. Uh, so I think he's going to have a very difficult time uh, getting reelected uh, next year. If Trump runs, uh, we could have a second Trump presidency if Trump is denied. Uh, the right to run, which may be very difficult for them to pull off. Uh, he could very well win again, or there could be another Democratic uh, challenge. I think uh, Biden's days uh, are, are numbered. Well, one of the reasons he is in trouble, and, and you're correct, his approval rating was already very low. It was like 40%, 41%. Now it's below 40% in the high 30s, which is very troubling for an incumbent. And the state of Michigan, where you are, is one of his problems. Michigan has a large population of Middle Eastern descent. It is a swing state. It's one of those states that Hillary Clinton lost and in so doing gave uh, the Electoral College victory to Donald Trump, her uh, inattention to getting out the vote. She lost the state by just 10,000 votes. And of course, there's always some sort of Republican uh, effort to keep black people from voting. I'm not saying that didn't happen, but her lack of attention to the state of Michigan put Trump in office. So you have this state where Democrats need every vote, and they are now hoping the large, that large Middle Eastern population will watch as uh, Joe Biden helps Israel destroy Gaza, kill thousands of people, but will still vote for Biden anyway. Uh, it could happen among some. Uh, but then uh, at the same time, I believe some people will not be able to, despite the fact that there are two Democratic uh, senators here in Michigan, uh, Debbie Stabenow and Gary Peters, both who have been targets of demonstrations over the last uh, two weeks uh, because they have remained silent uh, in, in the face of this genocide that is going on. Also, the governor, uh, Whitmer, uh, is a Democrat as well. The Democrats now control both houses of the state legislature. But at the same time, Biden cannot uh, depend on that, uh, reassuring that he will win uh, the state of Michigan. As you mentioned in 2016, even during the primaries, Bernie Sanders uh, defeated uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016, and then uh, she lost the state of Michigan in 2016 uh, because a lot of people did not vote for president. Uh, you can go to the polls uh, in an election, in a presidential election, you not vote uh, either way. Uh, for the president. You can vote for other uh, candidates and other uh, resolutions and amendments on the ballot. Just because uh, Joe Biden is on the ballot doesn't necessarily mean that people will vote for him. That's what happened in uh, 2016 uh, related to uh, Hillary Clinton. And the same thing could happen in uh, 2024. If we look back at 2020, Joe Biden actually won to a large degree by default because of the excesses of Donald Trump, the fact that uh, Trump was destroying uh, the Postal Service, uh, his uh, response to the George Floyd rebellion, uh, calling for the uh, enactment 
of the Insurrection Act, which is a slave era act uh, from the early 19th century, uh, the fact that he was uh, calling for uh, removal of uh, legitimate electors, uh, all of these things uh, contributed uh, to his defeat. 2024 will be a totally different situation. We have huge uh, unrest in the labor movement uh, right here in Michigan. Detroit now is labeled Strike City uh, because of the UAW strike, uh, although there's been two uh, tentative agreements with Ford and uh, Stellantis vis-a-vis uh, -vis the UAW. Uh, but uh, General Moses is still out. Uh, the All three of the casinos in downtown Detroit, uh, all the workers there are on strike, some 3,700 of them. Blue Cross, Blue Shield, they're represented by the UAW Local 2,500. They're still on strike. Strike City, uh, in the face of a Democratic president who claims to be the most pro-labor president in U.S. history, boasts about Bidenomics that everything is just doing fine uh, in regard to the economic conditions of the United States is clearly uh, an illusion. I mean, people can't afford to put gasoline in their cars. Uh, a lot of people can't afford to buy food. They can't afford to buy clothes. People have dropped out of school because they can't afford uh, tuition. They have to repay uh, these draconian uh, student loans uh, that are really unpayable. So all of these uh, factors are going to play into the elections uh, next year. And who knows what, what, other, what other crises will develop uh, over the next uh, year in the United States as well as international. Well, just to know that um, the state of Israel is not inevitable. It is a creation of imperialism uh, after World War II. Uh, it serves as an outpost principally uh, for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and in particular the United States. Uh, someone in the past described it as a unsinkable uh, aircraft carrier uh, in uh, West Asia and the North Africa region. Uh, so it is not inevitable. Uh, public opinion can shift here in this country and around the world, which we see happening. And there can be uh, a lessening or even an abandonment of uh, the financial support uh, for the state of Israel. Uh, moreover, they are outnumbered uh, in the region. In Lebanon, you have uh, Hezbollah, which is a resistance movement. You have uh, huge resistance forces in Yemen, uh, the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran, and even in other countries like Syria, for example, uh, are against uh, the state of Israel. Also, uh, within countries like the Kingdom of Jordan, Egypt, and others, uh, there are people uh, who are willing to volunteer uh, to fight against the uh, state of Israel. So it's no guarantee uh, that if there's a full-blown regional war, that the state of Israel will prevail. So I think people need to keep that in mind. Uh, we can think back years, decades ago, uh, in regard to what was going on in Southern Africa, where people were saying uh, there was no way uh, that the uh, white minority uh, apartheid regime could be defeated in Namibia. They could not be defeated in Angola. They couldn't be defeated in Mozambique and South Africa and Zimbabwe. And they were defeated. They had the support of the United States. Portugal had the support of the United States. The racist apartheid regime had the support of the United States. So uh, the same situation, I believe, will inevitably uh, prevail uh, in Palestine, and the Palestine will be uh, free and united and sovereign, uh, and it will become a unitary state uh, where everyone will have a right uh, to participate uh, in the process of governance. And that was Abayomi Azikiwe of the Pan-African Newswire discussing the impact of U.S. and Israeli actions against Palestine. 
Welcome back, and uh, that was an interview uh, with uh, Black Agenda Radio, uh, hosted uh, by Margaret Kimberly, uh, the executive editor of uh, Black Agenda Report. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for uh, today. Uh, You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, November 5th, 2023. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music uh, of jazz guitarist Kenny Burrell. He's playing alongside another uh, formidable uh, jazz contributor, John Coltrane. This was done in 1962. And this is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Mm-hmm.